This is the MDT Podcast. A podcast for all healthcare professionals working with older adults. We are a multidisciplinary team educating about ageing. MDT. The MDT is brought to you by the Hearing Aid Podcast team. We focus on a different topic each week to work with you to enhance your knowledge to help you look after older people. Welcome to the MDT this week. I am Dr Ian Wilkinson. I am a consultant geriatrician from Surrey in the UK. And I am Joe Preston and I am a geriatrician in Tooting. At St George's. At St George's. Yeah. Uh, that's where I train. Have I told you that? <laughs> have you told me that? Yeah. Yes, you have yeah. once or twice. Yeah. One of my colleagues who is a trainee down the south coast, Alex Basford, always says I never say where I work at the beginning. She's like, you always say, no, I'm actually. in South London. <laughs> I'm in London. <laughs> it's not on purpose. Yeah. I'm not ashamed. I just... Yeah. So you're Joe from St George's, yeah. I'm Joe from St George's, yeah. yeah. This week, uh, Joe and I are going to talk about ageing lungs uh, with a little bit of help from some other people. Yes. Uh, The faculty this week uh, has mostly been uh, Sarah Jane Ryan, who's a physiotherapist from Brighton. But as you will see as we go through, uh, we've got a bit of help from uh, a couple of other people and we'll introduce them as we go along. So this episode is going to sound a little bit different to some of the others. Coming up this week, we're going to talk about and describe the normal changes in older people's lungs. We're going to talk about the impact of frailty on an older person's response to a respiratory insult. We're going to talk about how to describe spirometry to a patient and to signpost people to ways to improve their inhaler technique. And we're going to talk about how to promote smoking cessation to all of our patients, uh, those with and without lung disease. Also coming up this week, we have a new MD teaser game, we have a gallery input, mm-hmm. and we have the introduction to the MDT club. And don't forget, you can log your learning from this episode in our CPD log on our website, which is www.hearingaidpodcasts.org.uk. And all this week, there'll be a chat about this episode using the hashtag MDT Club on Twitter. Yes. Um, run and collated by Dan Thomas, who's a geriatrics registrar up in Liverpool, mm-hmm. um, and had does a fantastic job yes. of running that. So, talking of Twitter, what have you seen on social media? This week... Actually, I might start. So, again, talking of Dan, um, this was um, something I found on his Twitter, which was um, something really nice, which was research agendas um, around dementia as proposed by people who are living with dementia. Oh, I saw this. <laughs> I saw this today. It's mine, it's mine. Yeah. So um, I'm just going to read a few of them. Um, obviously, we'll put a link to this on the website so you can go and have a look at that. So rather than lots of the medical research is around kind of very biochemical medical things, these are some of the things that people came up with. So what is the impact of stigma associated with dementia and mental health issues on people with dementia and their families? Um, what can be done to support the emotional well-being and maintaining a sense of dignity for people with dementia? Among people with dementia, what is the impact of early treatment on quality of life, disease progression and cognitive symptoms? What enables creation of dementia-friendly communities? What impact do dementia-friendly initiatives have on people with dementia and their friends, families, caregivers and care partners? So there are some just really, really nice things. So, mm. yeah, we'll put a link to that. You can read more. What was yours? My one, I it's not really social media. Well, it's sort of social media, but I kind of stole it. So Joe and I do a lot of the work for this podcast in various coffee shops on yes. some Tuesday afternoons. Yeah. And I was in the coffee shop uh, waiting for Joe, which has never happened before. <laughs> never. So unusual. And Yeah. And uh, I'm sat there, minding my own business, and this guy <laughs> sits down next to me and 
puts a journal out on on the the seat next to him, and I just sort of glanced sideways, you know, and saw this journal and saw the title of the article of this journal, and I was like, I've got to I've got to look that up. Uh, so I did. So if you're the man that happened to sit next to me um, in this coffee shop, then then this is social media because because of you. Um, so this is a randomised control study of art observation training to improve medical students' ophthalmology skills. Brilliant. And essentially, what they did was they uh, the aim was to look at whether or not observation and description, which are critical to the practice of medicine, can be learnt from observing and describing art. Lovely. So they put students into an art training group uh, taught by professional art educators in Philadelphia uh, from the Museum of Art. And they used six hour-and-a-half-long custom-designed art art observation sessions over a three-month period. And then they described works of art. They looked at retinal pathology images and described those um, and external photos of eye diseases. Mm. And then they tested their observational skills. And essentially, art training for first-year medical students improved clinical ophthalmology observational skills. And they conclude that principles from the field of the visual arts, which is meant to excel in teaching observation and descriptive stuff, uh, can be successfully applied to medical training. Brilliant. Love it. Brilliant. So good. Entirely a serendipitous moment (laughs) in a coffee shop. Great. Excellent. So, bringing us back today. Bringing us back to today. So this week we're going to talk about ageing lungs. And a good chunk of this episode comes from an interview that I did with Professor Allen, who's a professor of uh, geriatric medicine in Bournemouth and the University of Southampton. This was recorded at a British Geriatric Society conference in Belfast in 2013, so a little while ago now. I've had this sort of stored away on the back burner until we, we did this episode. Um, Just so, waiting for one day. Waiting for one day, yeah. <laughs> so I apologise for some of the sound quality. It might be slightly less good than... than uh, you, what you might be expecting from us. Mm. Um, but what we can do is we're going to kind of play that interview but interject it with uh, some of our thoughts and comments as we go along. And I think okay. the first place we should start is just to set the scene a little bit and to think about dyspnea or that mm. sensation of breathlessness mm. which is present in a third of people over the age of 70 and is associated with poorer functional status, so you're not able to do as much, poorer physical and mental health. People are more likely to be anxious and or depressed if they have dyspnea. And the presence of uh, left ventricular failure, airways disease and obesity are all higher in that group. Mm. Now, some of that is cause and effect. Yeah, so it can be multifactorial. Yeah. So about 60% of all presentations with shortness of breath or dyspnea are in people over the age of 65. Um, But in older adults, it's a little bit more difficult to evaluate. It is quite a subjective um, symptom. There's quite a small margin between what's disease and what's physical. What does that mean? So what that means is that as we age, for example, within our lung function, the FEV1 reduces over time. And actually, by the time you're 85, your FEV1 which is, is at a level, which is the amount of air that you can blow out in one second, mm-hmm. is at a level that would probably be diagnostic 
for obstructive airways disease, even though you may not actually have obstructive airways disease. Okay, so we're saying that the age-related changes could be defined as disease if you're younger, but actually it's part of normal process. Correct. Okay. Um, shortness of breath might be due to deconditioning, so either due to age or just simply fitness levels. We've all had that before. It's more common as age increases, um, and it varies according to severity. Yeah. So a way to grade breathlessness, if you wanted to, is using something called the MRC grading, which goes as five grades from zero to four. So zero is um, their statements. I only get breathless for strenuous exercise. Uh, one is I get short of breath when hurrying on the level or when walking up a slight hill. Grade two is I walk slower than other people of the same age on the level because of my breathlessness. Or I have to stop for breath when I'm walking at my own pace on the level. Grade three is I stop for breath when walking after about 100 metres or a few minutes on the level. And grade four is I'm too breathless to leave the house or I'm breathless when dressing or undressing. By far the commonest cause of breathlessness is cardiac or respiratory disease. And mm-hmm. if you combine cardiac and respiratory disease together, that accounts for about 70% of all breathlessness. The rest is made up by uh, neurological problems. So if you have lost power to some of the muscles and you can't move your chest wall, you feel breathless. Mm-hmm. It's quite an unusual condition, but yep. there nonetheless. Yeah, or anemia. Mm-hmm. So when you're not carrying the oxygen around the blood... Your mm-hmm. natural physiological response is to feel breathless and try mm-hmm. and increase your oxygen levels or, or other things. Yeah. So we're going to head to the interview now. You have to see if Ian's voice sounds younger. Yeah, yeah, this was five years ago. Yeah. Uh, and this is uh, Professor Allen. Um, I wondered if we could talk a little bit about normal respiratory function in people as we get older. Yes, indeed. Um, the first thing to say is that uh, healthy lungs in old age are perfectly serviceable and meet the requirements of an older person's respiratory demands. Mm. Um, So most of the problems we see with breathing in old age are due to pathology, but they're complicated by the ageing changes in the lung, and the ageing lung is more vulnerable to superimposed disease. And it's another example of how reserves in all respiratory and other systems uh, decline in old age, so that the the, the difference between the available function and the failure threshold gets narrower. So the amount of superimposed disease that you need is less than it will be in the younger person yeah. in order to give you the, the failure phenotype. Yeah. This makes me think about that um, definition of frailty that we've been through quite a few times now and we discussed at the beginning of the second series, um, which is um, an accumulation of deficits. So not just one thing, but lots of little things building up to contribute. The age-related changes that occur in the lung parenchyma make the lung parenchyma more compliant with age, therefore more likely to collapse in on itself. And this is one of the, thing one of the things that leads to the uh, reduced lung volumes that we normally see associated with ageing. Um, and so because of that, there is a certain amount of natural increase in uh, airflow resistance with age. Um, and, and hence the changes in the spirogram towards the change in volume and the change towards a more obstructed-looking mm. um, uh, spirogram morph- morphology. Uh, one of the problems with that, of course, is that uh, quite a lot of people with very aged but normal lungs without any definite pathology meet the criteria for obstruction mm. according to the gold criteria. And this is causing quite a lot of debate at, um, uh, at British Thoracic Society, American Thoracic Society level regarding definitions, etc. So I think it's useful uh, 
at that point for us just to have a little bit of a think about COPD mm -hmm. or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or chronic obstructive airways disease or chronic obstructive lung disease or emphysema or bronchitis or whatever you want to call it. Um, because it's an important and common condition. 5% mm. of all global deaths are due to COPD. Exposure to tobacco smoke is the main cause, although some are due to long-term asthma. Yeah, but the vast majority is tobacco. Mm. And it affects 1.2 million people living in the UK at the moment. And that is 4% of everyone over the age of 40. So the main symptoms associated with COPD are shortness of breath or dyspnea, which tends to be progressive and persistent and characteristically worse with exercise. A chronic cough, which may be intermittent and may be unproductive, so quite dry. And also chronic sputum production. So um, quite often they'll bring up quite a lot in the mornings yeah. in particular. And that's part of the definition, isn't it? It's, it's, it's three months of the year for three years, cough and sputum. And when you're seeing someone with COPD, the goals of your assessment are to try and to determine the severity of the illness, including the severity of the airflow limitation and the impact of this on the person's health and then the risk of further complications and further events. Mm. So people with COPD are at increased risk of a number of diseases, um, including cardiovascular diseases, osteoporosis, um, sometimes through the steroid treatment that they might be on, respiratory infections, anxiety and depression as part of having quite a limiting uh, condition, um, diabetes, lung cancer and bronchiectasis. And there's some excellent guidance from the Global Initiative for Chronic Obstructive Lung Disease, which uh, has produced the gold classification. Mm. And I think it's just worth talking through the components of this yep. because I think it's a useful way to think about COPD without necessarily talking about the exact categories. The gold criteria has a little chart that's kind of got three axes on it and the first axis is that which we've already talked about which is the Medical Research Council dyspnea scale from zero, no breathlessness, to four uh, sort of breathlessness that's limiting you moving around the house. Which kind of runs along the bottom, yeah. the foundations of the house, or what would be the x-axis. Yeah, and then up the vertical side on the left, you've got the severity of the airway obstruction. Now, with COPD, you lose some of the elasticity in the airways, so as people breathe out, the airways may collapse, and the amount of air that can flow out is reduced. And that can be a mild, moderate, severe, or very severe Mm -hmm. And that's graded in percentage of air that you blow out in that first second, that FEV1. And that's either 80% or more, 50 to 80, 30 to 50 or less than 30. So the very severe people are blowing out a third of the amount of air in that first second mm. that you'd expect them to. And that's spirometry, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. So that's going up the left-hand side of the house with increasing severity. And then on the right-hand side, you've got whether or not people have exacerbations mm -hmm. or relatively sudden worsenings of their condition. And again, that goes up in severity and up the right wall of the house. Yeah. So that allows you to put people into four groups mm -hmm. based on their airflow obstruction, their symptoms at a baseline, and whether or not they get exacerbations or not. And those four groups in turn correlate to what types of treatment you may offer people. 
but we're not really going to talk about the COPD management because we could kind of do a whole episode of that. Yeah. We could kind of do a whole episode of that. It's a whole subspecialty of respiratory. Other than to say pulmonary rehabilitation works excellently. Yes. Particularly in older people. So an earlier rather than later referral to pulmonary rehabilitation is uh, very definitely appropriate with other medical treatments and smoking cessation that we'll also talk about a little bit later on. Within the house, um, then they're split into four um, based on those parameters and gives you a grading A, B, C, D, which um, helps to guide your treatment. Yeah, so A is at the bottom left, so that's mild symptoms, few exacerbations and not much airway obstruction. And D is in the upper right-hand corner, which is severe obstructions, severe symptoms and multiple exacerbations. Yeah. So let's go back to Professor Allen. I think that there are some other important age-related changes that occur other than those that we measure with the spirogram. The, the chest wall itself becomes less compliant. Mm. So the combination of a more compliant parenchyma and the inflation, hyperinflation to collapse that occurs as a result of that and the increase in, in, the, uh, in the stiffness of the chest wall uh, leads to an increase in the work of breathing. Mm-hmm. And of course, a lot of older people, particularly elderly women, and especially those with osteoporosis, become kyphotic and develop a restrictive defect superimposed as a result of that. This can substantially limit the, um, the, the ability to increase ventilation and therefore uh, can become a, a limit on, on physical activity. Uh, there's also a little bit less good uh, matching between uh, ventilation and perfusion with age. Um, which in the normal lung is of no consequence but can be important with superimposed disease. The lung's defences against infection are pretty good in old age, um, but there is some evidence of uh, uh, decreased uh, macrophage, scavenging, etc. So a little bit more uh, prone to uh, infection. I think what's important here Mm. is thinking about older people and the way that they present with illness and that as a virtue of the changing in the physiology I think older people often present atypically with illness so someone for example with a pneumonia in their 30s might present with chest pain pleuritic chest pain breathlessness and maybe some hemoptysis or increased sputum production whereas an older person may present with that same pneumonia with circulatory collapse or a fall or a delirium episode. Um, They won't necessarily present with the exact symptoms of the underlying pathology. And as we age, our response to hypoxia and hypercapnia is impaired. Which is low oxygen levels and high carbon dioxide levels. Yeah, and you have less respiratory reserve. So again, thinking about frailty, you're closer to that threshold of of dysfunction. And you have a 50% reduction in your response to the low oxygen and about a 40% reduction in your normal response to the uh, high carbon dioxide. And also, ageing is associated with a loss of some of the protective mechanisms um, to develop hypoxia and hypercapnia. So, for example, you're more likely to pick up infections as you get older as your immune system doesn't work quite Mm. so well. Um, and you're more likely to develop airways disease as you get older. Um, And so actually you become much more vulnerable to some of the problems uh, associated with airways disease. So then he describes, I describe a case to him 
and we talk about the case. And this is someone that presents with uh, breathlessness and wheeze. Okay. And do they have asthma? Do they have something else? Okay. I think quite often people people listening will, will see patients that come into hospital with no apparent prior lung disease, um, perhaps with a low respiratory tract infection or some focal consolidation on the x-ray and a pneumonia, who, whilst in hospital, get quite a lot of, uh, sort of bronchial reactivity to that and present with wheeze. Yeah. Um, more typical, perhaps, of, of some of the younger patients we see with advanced COPD. Yes. And I wondered whether or not that was sort of related to normal ageing or if that's... I think it can be both, and I think that what you've described is a common uh, clinical scenario. Um, And a number of factors can be involved. Firstly, of course, some of the patients that you've described having no history of COPD actually do have COPD. They've either been exposed to uh, smoking that they've not declared or they've forgotten about, or passive smoking, or other forms of uh, pollution, all of which could contribute towards um, uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, so some of them are just manifesting their COPD for the first time under that duress. Yep, sure. Some, though this is relatively uncommon, um, have uh, infection-induced bronchospasm because, in fact, they have asthma. Um, and um, they would then need to be appropriately managed and mm. investigated. And if possible, you would want to demonstrate the reversibility and manage them according to the standard uh, guidelines, providing they can use the inhalers. Uh, so I think it's useful just to think about asthma mm-hmm. as a diagnosis. Yeah. So generally, if someone has a history of asthma, then they will have had it from when they're a young adult um, or a child even. Um, it doesn't tend to come on in later life so much. So uh, a later onset would be more in keeping with the COPD picture. Yeah. Um, but the diagnosis of asthma is a clinical one. Mm-hmm. And there is no real gold standard diagnostic criteria. Uh, so it's difficult to make unequivocal evidence-based recommendations on how to make a diagnosis. But the BTS and Scottish guidelines, so the SIGN guidelines... And BTS, the British Thoracic Society, they have a yes, great website. They've got a really good website. Say that, uh, regarding asthma, central to all definitions is the presence of symptoms, so more than one of wheeze, breathlessness, chest tightness or cough, and a variable airflow obstruction. But more recently, descriptions of asthma in both children and adults have included airway hyper-responsiveness and airway inflammation as components of the disease. So I think that's one of the things that raises the possibility of an asthma-like illness in these uh, sort of patients that we're talking about. Mm. So there's a possibility that there will be people um, with a high probability of asthma in whom monitored initiation of treatment is appropriate. So giving them some inhalers and see how that improves things without necessarily waiting for further investigation to definitely diagnose to be able to justify the treatment and quite often if someone is exacerbating with their asthma you wouldn't want to delay giving them a treatment anyway no and i think uh, one of the things that i don't know if it's i notice it more now or um whether or not it's more of a thing maybe it's not it's something i see on the general medicine take rather than my care of the elderly take but it's people with um, post-viral bronchial hypersensitivity. Yeah. So lots of yeah, wheeze. Yeah, I'm seeing that a more. Yeah, and, and I think some of that's due to the viruses that are around at the moment. Um, but I think people that get recurrent post-viral bronchial hypersensitivity, these are the people that we're now starting to think actually maybe they have an underlying diagnosis of asthma mm. um, and uh, hyper-reactive airways. 
So it'd be worth referring those if you're picking them up and you're seeing them in physiotherapy or something like that for evaluation, probably their GP in the first instance. Yeah. Some, of course, will have lapsed into heart failure. Of course, it's, it's well known that you can um, get wheezing as part of the overall clinical uh, picture of, of heart failure, particularly if there's, if there's pulmonary edema, with the edema that occurs in the airways as part of that. Um, and, of course, a lot of people with acute chest conditions go into heart failure because they're hypoxic and, they're, um, uh, and, 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 and because of direct um, toxic effects on myocardium from sepsis. Um, then uh, I think it's also necessary occasionally to look for the more unusual things that mm. might be wheezing because you know they've got an upper airway problem or yep. they've, they've inhaled something and I think that we've always got to be ready to uh, think laterally and, and look for the, the, the rarer things um, I think if you can hear someone wheezing then, then you need obviously to treat them at face value you may at the same time be treating the apparent acute low respiratory tract infection but they'll need bronchodilators and other supportive treatments and if they're very tight uh, it can be justifiable to give them corticosteroids and if you don't want to give corticosteroids systemically you can use nebulized budesonide or other non-absorbed steroids um, um, uh, instead and then uh, it's a case then of whether they should be investigated later to try to establish whether or not they've got chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and I think that'll all hinge on when they're well enough to do spirometry and their ability to do spirometry will be uh, prim- primarily um, predicated on their cognitive function. Yeah. People with significant degrees of cognitive impairment find it difficult to do a full spirometric manoeuvre. And when they've done their pulmonary function testing, and if it shows an, an obstructive type picture, um, am I right in thinking that the presence of or absence of symptoms really is the... Um, guiding us as to whether or not this person has sort of an, an obst- a true chronic obstructive disease or... Yes, if, if after they recover, they recover from the episode you yes. described, uh, they, they have none of the hallmarks of airflow obstruction clinically. You know, their exercise tolerance is reasonable, they're not wheezing, the chest x-ray looks okay, and their, and their spirometry, if they've been able to do it, uh, may have an obstructive morph- morphology, but it's unlikely from the clinical scenario that it will be a severe obstruction. Mm. They, don't, they don't need any treatment, uh, though they might need bronchodilators during chest infections if they wheeze each time. Um, and they would be as well, of course, to have pneumococcal and, and influenza immunisation because we know that that, uh, uh, that uh, reduces a number of outcomes, but most particularly uh, rate of admission to hospital. Um, that occur, that applies to people with heart failure, COPD, and a number of other uh, comorbidities as well. So spirometry, mm. I think it's worth just uh, thinking about spirometry because it's pivotal in both the British Thoracic Society and the NICE guidelines about um, the diagnosis of COPD and, and asthma. But both of them caution about it ruling out asthma from the basis of spirometry because the sensitivity is relatively low and especially in uh, primary care populations where only 27% of people being diagnosed with having asthma using the NICE guidelines in their feasibility studies actually had obstructive spirometry which is similar to, to those that they've done if you follow other guidelines like the British Society guidelines. Okay, so what you're saying if you have spirometry and it's 
positive or it shows a problem, it could still be asthma. It's not necessarily COPD. or It's not very good at ruling out asthma. And so what is spirometry? So spirometry is a way of measuring lung function and it measures the volume of air that the patient is able to expel from their lungs after a maximal inspiration. So a really, really big breath and then puff out. So it is quite a reliable way of differentiating between the obstructive airway disorders and restrictive diseases, which are the ones where the size of the lungs are reduced down. So things like fibrosis in the lungs. Um, And it is the most effective way of looking at the severity of COPD. And 70 to 80% of general practitioners uh, have spirometry in their clinics, Mm. and therefore its use is increasing particularly actually since it's been included in the primary care contract since mm. 2004. So I think it's useful to think about how you would describe doing spirometry to somebody. Mm. And I think it's about explaining to people that they're going to be given a set of instructions as to how to breathe in and how to breathe out. And when they breathe out, they're going to be blowing out into a machine and it's going to test how well their lungs are working and that... Um, At times they'll need to blow out for a long time and other times they'll need to blow out really forcefully. Mm. So that might be difficult for some people to follow the instructions for, um, either in real time or to remember in advance. Yes, particularly people, as Professor Allen says, who have cognitive impairment. It can be be quite difficult to to Mm. use spirometry. So you need to think about the symptoms that people are having as well and perhaps working off a more symptomatic diagnosis rather than uh, something more result. objective. Yeah. Practice nurses predominantly perform uh, spirometry, but the British Thoracic Society feel that sometimes they don't have the confidence in interpreting the results. Mm. And there's a really good guide called Spirometry in Practice, a practical guide to using spirometry in primary care that I'll put a link to in the show notes that um, talks through how to do and how to interpret some spirometry results in a really good, clear mm. uh, fashion, actually. And makes the point that accurate spirometry can only be performed if you've had appropriate training. The BTS defined that most nurses and GPs have asked for more help in carrying out and, and interpreting spirometry. And certainly some areas um, with community respiratory teams, um, they can provide that support. Yeah. So I know locally our, our respiratory nurses will go out and perform that if... Yeah the GP practices don't feel confident to do so or it's difficult for the person to get up to the surgery to have it done so it can be done at home as well. And I think it's also worth just thinking about the difference between spirometry and full pulmonary function testing. Mm-hmm. So spirometry is essentially a handheld device that looks at the amount of air that you blow in and out uh, whereas formal lung functioning will look in a bit more detail at the size of the lungs and also more the function of the lungs and how well the various gases are Moved diffusing across yeah. the, the membranes. If they do smoke, of course, there's a lot to be gained from stopping smoking, even in extreme old age. Mm. Um, and for, except for some small, um, very specific groups, such as elderly men who live on their own, etc., from certain socio-economic backgrounds who are unlikely to want to give up smoking as part of their social uh, uh, sort of scene, there's, the evidence is, mainly from work done in Scotland, that f- older people are as keen to give up smoking as younger people are and have about the same rates of quitting if they're given the, the right sort of support. So stopping smoking would be an it's, important part of the yeah. strategy. 
Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. So stopping smoking. Really important. Really, really, really important. Yeah. So most of those 4% of people who've got COPD over the age of 40 smoke. Yes. And if you stop smoking, then um, your chances of getting smoking-related diseases, such as lung cancer and COPD and heart disease, reduce. Yes. If you stop smoking at the age 60, you will add about three years to your life expectancy. If you stop smoking at 50, you'll add six years, 40, nine years, and at 30, you'll add 10 years to your life expectancy. So that might make the difference between you dying at 90 or 80. Mm. And with less symptoms. And with less symptoms. And there is good evidence. There's a nice graph, isn't there, that shows that it, uh, um, what you're saying there kind of highlights it as well, is that regardless of when you stop smoking, you can... Um, return closer to your normal lung function so it's not saying that if you smoke that if you stop smoking that your lungs will go back to normal but they will deteriorate at a much lesser rate than they would have done regardless of where you stop so i think that's something to reinforce to people because sometimes they say well i've been smoking 30 40 years what's it going to do now it won't make me feel better um let's kind of quote some of those numbers and say well actually yeah, you've done the damage so far, but you don't have to keep doing it yeah. and, and your lungs yeah. can recover a little. And I think it's worth telling people that when they stop smoking, they may well cough quite a lot. Yeah. And that's just the cilia, which is the sort of the small beating villi in the inside the of the lungs. The little hairs are kind yeah. of moving. Yeah, so as they start working again, then they, yeah. yeah. Which is often why uh, smokers cough in the morning, actually, because the cilia start working in after about 12 hours and they're just starting to clear the lungs, and mm. then when they have a cigarette, they stop coughing because they kill off all the cilia again. Mm. Okay. So there's a couple of nice graphics from the US Clinical Practice Guidelines on Stopping Smoking that I thought was quite nice. And uh, there's one graphic for people that want to stop, and then there's one graphic for people that don't want to stop. Mm. And so for the one that people do want to stop, it's the five A's. So you ask them to quit at every visit. Yep. You advise them to quit tobacco at every visit. You assess their willingness to quit every visit. You assist with their quitting for two weeks with pharmacotherapy, so things like patches or, or replacement um, inhalers and things, um, or counselling, um, and arrange follow-up contact in the first week after quitting. Yeah. And there's yeah. quite a lot of evidence that um, support from your GP practice in, in stopping smoking um, increases the likelihood that they will be able to stop. And then the R's for the people who are unwilling to quit is first of all the relevance, trying to work out why quitting is important to them, so their overall health, people that are around them and the secondhand smoke. Second R is the risks, so thinking about the negative consequences of ongoing smoking. The third R is thinking about the rewards of stopping smoking. The fourth R is to try and identify the roadblocks, the things that are stopping them. So is it the fear of weight gain or the fear of withdrawal symptoms or whichever? And then the final R is the repetition, which is to repeat this each time the person comes to clinic. They're quite nice. I quite like those. Yeah, I like them. Yeah. Nice and straightforward. So we'll stick them in the show notes. Mm. Part of the pulmonary function testing in someone who's able to do it should, of course, look for reversibility. And if someone has significant reversibility, and particularly if you've had a few episodes of wheezy breathlessness, then the probability is that they've had asthma or their life and it's not been adequately recognised or they've developed late-onset asthma, in which case they should be managed according to the usual the BTS guidelines. guidelines yeah. The guidelines 
are perfectly serviceable in old age. And again, the ability to learn and use an inhaler will depend on mainly on cognitive function yeah. and, and reinforcement of the technique and supervision. And do you find, any, are there any of the particular designs of inhalers that are better with people um, as they get older? Um, the, the ones that cause the difficulties are often those with several steps um, in their um, usage and particularly if there's a fiddly loading process with a small capsule. Um, we, we've done some work that shows that they, they're not the best choice. It's better to use the relatively simple two and three stage inhalers. But someone with significant cognitive impairment will still have difficulty even with the simplest inhalers. Um, and uh, sometimes you then have to get uh, someone else to administer the, the, the medication for them. Uh, I think the people who are most vulnerable are those who've got a bit of cognitive impairment and there's an assumption that they'll be able to do it and no one checks. If someone's got advanced cognitive impairment, it's obvious they won't be able to yeah. use the treatment and someone will then take over. And obviously people who are compost mentists, irrespective of age, are perfectly able to learn to use inhalers uh, or other similar devices. So I think it's useful at this point just to have a quick chat about inhalers. So there are lots of different types of inhalers, lots of different ways that they can be administered, different combinations of drugs, especially recently there's a huge, been a huge explosion, hasn't there, mm. it seems like, of, of different combination um, and devices and there's to evidence, confuse you. <laughs> yes, and there's evidence to support a negative con- correlation between advancing age and correct inhaler technique mm-hmm. across metered dose inhalers and dry powder devices. Um, when you look at them together. Mm. So I think it's important to think about the device that you're using with your patient. So talk through the options with them. And if you're going to use a device, personally I would think if you've got a device that can do... So if you're going to give people a number of different drugs, it's probably a better idea to have the same device with a number of drugs rather than one inhaler that works one way, yeah. another inhaler that works a different way, and a third inhaler Find that works, the one that works completely and stick to that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and quite often you won't be the person doing this, but you can quite often prompt the person themselves or their carers when they're going to talk to their practice nurse, who will do quite a lot of this, or the community respiratory nurses, um, about that kind of thing, using the same inhalers. And think about the practicalities of using an inhaler. So how do they get the drug into the inhaler? Is it one that's already mm-hmm. preloaded or do they have to have the dexterity to pop out a tablet and put that in mm-hmm. and open the inhaler up and work it? Think about the dexterity needed and the vision needed to operate the inhaler. Mm-hmm. Think about whether or not the inhaler needs cleaning and who's going to do that and how's that going to happen. Yeah. Think about whether or not you can fit a spacer on the inhaler which reduces some of the coordination that's needed between the timing of pressing things and inhaling the drug. And it means that people can breathe at a much more relaxed pace as well. So particularly when people are very breathless, they don't have to take that big puff in yeah. where lots of the drug just hits the back of the throat. Actually, it means they can breathe in much more gently. And then think about the frequency of delivery. And so if somebody's needing an inhaler and we give them one that they have to take two or three times a day and they've only got care support with them once a day, then maybe that's not the best thing. So try to fit and work with the patient to fit that um, treatment around their lifestyle. The best inhalers are the ones that they'll take. Yes. <laughs> and I've put a link to some advice from Asthma UK uh, and also we'll put some links to some useful YouTube videos that you can use there to show people how to use some of the inhalers. And that's it for this episode. So thank you very much to Professor Allen for allowing me to record him uh, a little while ago. If you've got any thoughts about that, please do let us know. 
Uh, remember to interact with the MDT Club chat using the hashtag MDT Club. Or you can contact us uh, if you've got any feedback on the episode via Twitter at MDT underscore podcast. Or on facebook.com forward slash MDT podcast. Or via the website, which is www.hearingaidpodcast.org.uk. And on the website, you can log your CPD. You can look at the references. You can look at the show notes. You can look at the curricular mapping. You can read the infographic. There's loads. Go and have a look. Loads. The MDT podcast. And now it's time for our MDT teaser actually titled MDT item guessing game and we've got two what I'm sure are going to be amazing uh, catchphrases <laughs> here. You go first. Okay so I've drawn mine again so I have to bear with you for a moment when I open up my paper. Right paper yeah. Okay okay right yeah yeah okay so I was quite excited by this one. Oh so, lord is it set in <laughs> 1765? It's not it's not it's not no okay so uh, you might want to leave this one a little bit while before we start guessing. Okay, okay. so there are um, five big um, red glass letters on the floor. Okay. And the first letter is a M. The second is an O. The third is an N. The fourth is a T. And the last is an H. So it spells month. Mm-hmm. And uh, a man comes along and he picks up each one in turn and cleans them and polishes them so they look really, really shiny. As he puts the end down, he puts it upside down and then he polishes them all up, looks at it and then wanders off very happy with the job that he's done. But he's very careful as he brushes and places them down really carefully. Is that it? That's it. I have absolutely no idea. Can I have another clue? Um, So think about the word. Yeah, month. Month. And think about the N when you turn it upside down. He's being really careful with the way that he cleans and so precisely he's caring places. He's about caring. It, caring about the word. So if the, if the N was upside down, it would be a U mouth care? Mouth care, yeah. Amazing. Yeah, oh, that was quite good. I think I was what, was, what I was struggling with at the beginning was in my head they were written as capitals. Uh, yeah, maybe. So That might I, actually I was like, be the power upside I down, it the first still time, And then it doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. Your cool. Turn. Now it's time for me. Now I'm gonna. So I think you need to confess it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna admit that I came unprepared with one. Then our sound engineer Sol came up with one that's amazing. Like it's so good. Um, so we're gonna do that. Are you ready? I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. Okay. So there is a salt cellar. A salt cellar. A salt cellar. Okay. Which... Like someone selling salt? Sorry. No, or, no like no. a little pot of salt. Okay. Yeah. And Salt Cellar is dressed as a Spanish footballer. Okay. And he kind of runs along and he's kind of kicking something. And what he's kicking is a little animal, mm-hmm. which is blind and has popped up from under the ground because he's been burrowing around and he like, comes up. Okay. So. Okay, so is the animal a mole? Yes. Okay. A salt seller is dressed up like a Spanish footballer yeah. and is kicking a mole. Yeah. Okay. So salt, salt, salt and kick. He's, and salt he's a footballer. Kick, salt kick mole. So salt, do you want boot, a clue? Boot. Yeah, go on. 
So the clue is it's related to today's episode. Okay, and that's respiratory. Salt. Is the Spanish bit important? Yes. Salt. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So is it is it like Spanish salt? Yes. So it's sal? Yes. So is it sal, <laughs> sal <laughs> ute, <laughs> boot, as in kicking a mole? Yes. Salbutamol. Salbutamol. Oh, awesome. That's brilliant. That's, brilliant. That's great. Uh, <laughs> that is absolutely brilliant. And kudos. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you very much. Sir. That was brilliant. I like that. <laughs> But well, it interested them all the time. That's much better. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> cool. Um, uh, so, yeah, so there is one on the website for you. Yes. Uh, use the hashtag MDTeaser for your guesses. Uh, the first person to guess this one will win an MDT mug. Yes. Uh, if you head on down to our Twitter, which is at MDT underscore podcast, pinned to the Twitter feed is the most recent clue. Yes. Good luck. Good luck. And just before we go, we're going to enter the gallery. So this time is my turn, mm-hmm. and I have a song that was written by Leonard Cohen to his muse, Marianne. So we're going to play you a little clip there, but we're going to put the whole thing on the website, and we'll tweet it out as well. It is um, at the end of their lives, kind of his his kind of song to her. Cool. Yep. So have a listen. Uh, let us know your thoughts. Come over to the window, my little darling. I'd like to try to read your poem. I used to think I was some kind of gypsy boy. So long, Marianne. It's time we began to laugh and cry and cry and laugh about it all. The MDT will reconvene in two weeks' time. Dr. Wilkinson has previously received funding from Astellas and UCB Pharmaceuticals for delivering educational activities. The MDT Podcast is a hearing aid podcast's Big Things Media production. Additional music by Kevin McLeod. This podcast has been made possible from a technology-enhanced learning grant from Health Education England, spreading education throughout Kent, Surrey and Sussex. For more information, visit thehearingaidpodcasts.org.uk.